today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 3. We'll be reading the whole chapter. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 23. If you're using the blue, blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find this chapter on page 953. Would you stand with me in honor of God's holy and inerrant word? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants whom, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is, Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise." For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now for the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of this word that was just read, that our eyes, that our minds might be opened to receive your truth for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians that we are calling a letter to a troubled church. And the church was troubled 
because a number of issues were plaguing it, and Paul addresses these various issues in his letter. And the first issue, and likely the underlying one, really had to do with factions that were developing within the church of Corinth. These factions were particularly centered on certain church leaders. Some would say, I follow Paul, or literally, I am of Paul. And others in the church would claim, well, I'm of Apollos. I I belong to Apollos. I I belong to his camp. And so there were these groups, these factions, these divisions found within the same congregation. And Paul mentioned this personality-driven way of thinking uh, back in chapter 1, verse 12. And then again, he references it in our text here in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, Paul specifically mentions Apollos in both of those instances, and likely for a reason. There's a reason why he's probably highlighting this one, brother. Because Apollos was a well-known figure in the church of Corinth. He's first mentioned in Scripture in the book of Acts, in Acts 4, in Acts 18. And he's introduced to us as a very powerful and persuasive preacher. We're told that he is, quote, an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. And he first met Paul in Ephesus, and there is where he was instructed more accurately in the faith. And, and from that point on, uh, he wanted to continue to, to, to preach God's gospel. And so he, he, he wished to visit Corinth, and he wanted to go to the various churches in that region. And we're told in Acts 18, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So that's Apollos. And the Corinthians were familiar with Apollos. They were familiar and they were also impressed by his rhetorical eloquence, arguably to a fault. Some were overly impressed by this man's eloquence. And they were, they were so enamored by eloquence that they began to elevate a sermon's form over its content, meaning that they cared less about what you said and more about how you said it and whether it moved them. Now, I think it would be unfair to suggest that Apollos was a spokesman for this particular factional group. I, I don't even think uh, it's, it's fair to say that he, he approved of what they were doing. He probably didn't even know that there was a group formed around his name because probably by this time he, are, he had already moved on to another region, to another city. But nonetheless, some members were aligning themselves with Apollos and with his reputation as a very eloquent preacher. And they were pitting themselves against others who felt a greater allegiance to the original church planner, the Apostle Paul, who was apparently a less gifted and less eloquent preacher, especially compared to Apollos. But he was instrumental. Paul was instrumental in laying down in the church a strong theological foundation of the gospel, of Christ crucified. That's for sure what Paul did for Corinth. And so there were factions in the church that were now siding with the two, centered around these particular personalities. And and Paul's whole point, starting in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4 so far, uh, is to make clear 
how inconsistent it is for a body of spiritual persons, that is, people who have the Spirit of God, to be, at the same time, a divided body of competing factions. Like, those two things should not go together. They should be like oil and water. They, they, they should not mix. Sharing the one Spirit of God and dividing over many allegiances, that, that's incompatible. That, 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 that shouldn't be found in the same congregation. And yet that's what's happening in the church of Corinth back then. And sadly, of course, it keeps happening in the American church today. Those who share the same faith and the same crucified Messiah who have received the same Holy Spirit can be so fractured and so divided. Now, in our day, those divisions, those factions, they can sometimes form around cultural markers or around racial backgrounds or around political persuasions or generational differences. Or like the Corinthians, factions today can also develop around certain church leaders. Some Christians grow so attached to a particular leader that, that if that leader were to, to move on to another church or, or to retire or, 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 God forbid, to be removed for some kind of disqualifying sin, well, such Christians tend to move on as well to go on to another church because their allegiance all along was more attached to that particular leader than to the body of Christ. Or some believers today will hop around to different churches based on whether their favorite preacher at that church happens to be preaching that day. They're going to you know, look at the website or, or uh, you know, see in the bulletin whether, you know, who's preaching that day. And I'll go to that church or that church. And, and now, of course, with so many churches streaming their services live, uh, well, now it's just so easy to attach yourself to you know, an online personality and claim that, that that person, that that pastor is my pastor, even though they don't even know you exist. <laughs> they, they, they've never met you before. And of course, it becomes an even bigger issue, a more problematic, problematic issue, if you yourself have grown disgruntled or, or dissatisfied with your own church's leaders. And now you're, you're, you're chasing after you know, online pastors and online personalities. So suffice to say, these divisions are as prevalent in the church today as you found back then in the church of Corinth. So, friends, as we're going to walk through this text, I want you to keep in mind that the main concern of our passage today are these personality-driven divisions. And so let's, ex- let's explore what these divisions in the church reveal about us. That's what I want us to look at. I want us to ask, what does this expose about us as a people? What should we learn knowing that there are these types of divisions among us. Well, there are three revelations, three things revealed. If you want to follow along, if you look in your bulletin, there's an outline, three revelations for us to consider. First, first, these kinds of divisions expose immaturity. Personality-driven divisions are evidence of a fleshly immaturity among believers. That's our first point. That's Paul's point, really, in verses one to four. He had just finished, as we saw last week in chapter two, driving home the point that their divisions stem from this mistaken mindset of a two-tiered Christianity, where some would claim that they possess a higher spirituality than others within the church. 
And Paul tried to erase those lines of distinction that they were drawing between Christians by arguing that every single Christian, everyone who receives Christ crucified, has received the exact same Holy Spirit. And so when he addresses them in chapter 2 as spiritual persons, he simply means that you are a person with the Holy Spirit. And he contrasts spiritual persons with natural persons, people without the Spirit, also known as non-Christians. And so I think it's safe to say that Paul here, addressing this letter to the Corinthians, he is assuming he's talking to Christians. Now, I know he's about to rebuke their divisive behavior, and the way he does it seems a bit confusing. Because at first, I know it's going to sound like he doesn't think or he's not sure if they're actually Christians. I mean, listen, listen to verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In other words, I, I can't speak to you as people of the Spirit. I'm, I'm going to address you as people of the flesh. I'm going to talk to you as fleshly people. And some are going to take that to mean that he has now concluded, hmm, I guess these Corinthians aren't actually Christians. But, you know, even though Paul does come down pretty hard on them in the next few verses, I actually don't think he is questioning their salvation. Because remember, he just addressed them as brothers. And he only uses that term in his letters to, to, to speak of brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember, he just stated in chapter 2 that they have the Spirit of God and that they have the mind of Christ. And even though he's saying they're acting like infants, they're infants in Christ, right? So I think, you know, Paul recognizes them as Christians, but he can't address them that way because they're not behaving that way. They're not acting like spiritual people, like people who live by the Spirit. No, as a divided people, right now they are resembling more like fleshly people, people who live by the flesh, people who don't have the Spirit of God in them. They're acting like non-Christians. But even so, even so, he is not literally calling them non-Christians. It's just like how he's not denying that they're adults and literally calling them infants. His point is that you are adults, but you're acting like infants. You are people of the Spirit, but you're behaving like people of the flesh. You are Christians, and yet you're acting like non-Christians. Who you are and what you're doing are not aligned. You are in contradiction right now. That's what he's saying. Now, as we've seen in the last chapter, those who gravitated towards Apollos were enamored with human eloquence. They considered Paul and his teaching as just too basic. They didn't appreciate his the cross-centered nature of his teaching. He doesn't go deep enough. You know, but, you know Paul, he, he just always keeps connecting everything back to Christ crucified. He, he just keeps coming back to the cross. He, he just keeps pouring milk for us, right? He's just treating us like babies. He's not giving us the, the, the real solid meat. And Paul's response is, well, that's because that's how you're behaving. <laughs> you're, you're behaving like babies, like spiritual babies, 
Look at what he says in verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. You see, for Paul, the gospel of Christ crucified is both, at the same time, milk and solid food. It's milk for non-Christians. It's milk for new Christians. I mean, it's something that they can easily handle, that they can digest it. But at the same time, the gospel is solid food for all Christians. Like, when you think about Christ crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, I mean, there is enough there in that truth to nourish a Christian for a lifetime. I've heard it said before that the gospel is shallow enough for a child to wade in and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. In other words, friends, you're never going to outgrow the gospel. You're never going to grow past your need to hear and to meditate in the gospel. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every single sermon that we preach or every lesson that we teach should just merely rehearse the same four points, the same four gospel points every single time. That's, that's not what we're saying here. When we preach or teach, we're going to cover more subjects than the gospel. But whenever we do so, we, we should try our best to connect it all back to Jesus Christ and him crucified because who he is and what he has done for us lies at the very center of our faith. And that's why Paul kept going back to Christ crucified, and that's why we should do the same. But Paul's concern is that they're so stunted in their spiritual growth that they can't handle much of that. If I try to apply the gospel for you in a deeper way, if I try to feed you more biblical truth, you're just going to spit it up like a baby. You're, just, you're not ready for more. It's like trying to feed a newborn by swapping out her bottle of milk with a steaming bowl of chicken noodle soup. You're like, oh, yeah, chicken noodle soup. You know, it's good for the soul. It's going to be good for you, baby. But, you know, newborns, you know what's going to happen. They're just going to throw it up. They're going to spit it up. It's just too rich for them. Well, Paul's saying, I think, something similar. You want more from my teaching, but you can't handle more. You're just going to spit it up. And he points to all of their infighting as evidence of that as evidence of their, their, their spiritual immaturity. Look back with me at verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? His point here is that jealousy and strife is, is really what you would expect out of a fallen human nature. Out of mere humanity, that's what you get. Divisions and factions, party lines, that's just normal expected behavior from mere humans. I mean, just think about it. Uh, Our human sinfulness is expressed at the most fundamental level in our self-centeredness. So what that means is that instead of submitting to God as the center of my life and, and really as the center of the entire universe... In my sinfulness, I seek to be the center of my own universe. And then I expect everyone and everything in my life to revolve around me. I mean, I think that's a great way of describing our sinful self-centeredness. Now, it comes at no surprise that we run into conflict 
when we operate out of that mindset. When you're in community with people with that mindset, with mere humans, collisions are bound to occur. I mean, it's like, it's like trying to bring two planets right next to each other. The moons and the satellites that are revolving around those two planets, they are inevitably going to collide with each other. And eventually, those planets themselves are going to find their orbits on a collision course. That's why, that's why every human community experiences strife and division, because everyone is jockeying to try to be in the center. Everyone wants to be in the center. Everyone expects everyone to revolve around them. But what if? What if both planets were orbiting around the same sun? What if they shared the same gravitational center? Then, then they would avoid collisions because neither of them are going to be competing anymore to be in the center. Now they can move in perfect harmony with each other. I think in the same way. In the same way, if every one of us here had the Spirit of God, the one who is able to open up our eyes to help us recognize Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the center of all things, then we would all end up orbiting the same Son, as in the Son of God. Jesus would be our center. And we, if we were behaving, that is, as we should, if we were behaving as Christians, orbiting around Jesus, then there will be true harmony. Then there will be genuine peace among us. And so the fact that collisions and conflicts occur, the fact that there are personality-driven divisions present, well, that's just evidence of a fleshly immaturity still residing among believers. We're not behaving as we ought. We're not orbiting our lives around Jesus as we ought. No, we are adopting the self-centered mentality of mere humans. That's what it reveals. Brothers, sisters, I hope you know I'm not here to question your salvation. I, I, I trust that you have the Spirit of God if you are a Christian, that you have the Spirit of God in you. But, but I do want to ask a question. I do want to ask this question. Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Are, are you being led by the Spirit? Or are you regularly grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, relying on yourself instead of the Spirit? You see, the conflicts and divisions in your own experience of Christian community, it reveals that you still have some growing up to do, that there's still some immaturity to address. So the first thing that personality-driven divisions reveal is the spiritual immaturity still among us. Second, here's the second thing. Personality-driven divisions demonstrate a faulty view of Christian leadership. A faulty view of Christian leadership. That's Paul's point in verses 5 to 15. Boasting in your association with certain leaders is contrary to the wisdom of the cross. Paul says not only does that behavior betray a faulty view of Christ crucified, it demonstrates a faulty view of Christian leadership. And he offers us two analogies to teach two important truths about Christian leaders. The first is an agricultural analogy, and the second is architectural. So let's look at verse 5. 
He just expressed how strange it is for Christians to say that I follow Paul or I am of Apollos. In verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, he's saying, guys, you have too high a view of Christian leaders. What are we? We are mere servants. So why are you claiming to be of Paul's camp or, or claiming to belong to Apollos' camp? Neither one of us are masters to whom you would actually belong. That, my friends, is the first truth to learn about Christian leaders. You can't belong to a particular leader. As Christians, you belong to one master, and his name is Jesus. Paul and Apollos just mere servants. In fact, not, not just servants, but farmhands. Boasting in a church leader is like boasting in a farmhand. It's just silly. And, and notice how, how Paul says that we are servants through whom you believe, not, not in whom you believed. I mean, you're behaving like we're the ones you're supposed to believe in when all along our shared goal has always to get you to believe in Jesus that's the goal. I mean, sure, different Christian leaders have different jobs. They have different callings. So in Corinth, Paul's job was to plant the church. And then after he did that, he moved on. And then Apollos showed up to Corinth and he watered the church with his powerful, persuasive preaching. He nourished the church as a young church. But in the end, in the end, what really matters, what, what both Paul and Apollos were both laboring for, is only what God can do. God gave the growth. Only God can grow a church into Christ-like maturity. So what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? You see what he's doing here? Paul is trying to change our perspective on Christian leaders. He's trying to challenge our tendency to elevate preferred leaders over others. And his whole point in verse 8 is that he and Apollos and all Christian leaders by extension were all one. As in, we have one purpose. We all share the same purpose to see God's church grow. The one purpose is to see God's church flourish in its fruitfulness. That's what it's all about. So to anyone claiming to belong to this or to that leader, to belong to this or to that camp, Paul's message is clear. You don't belong to anyone but the Lord. The Lord is your master. Look at verse 9. This is so clear here. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He says here, the field, that is the church, belongs to God. The workers, the, the, the church's leaders, belongs to God. The growth, all the fruit from all the ministry we're doing, belongs to God. We all belong to God. So why in the world are you competing with each other and making exclusive claims to follow this or that leader? Christian leaders are merely farmhands. We can appreciate them. We can honor them. 
but we must be careful not to make too much of them. Let's avoid the tendency to speak of prominent churches out there as so-and-so's church. Oh, that's that person's church. And we're thinking of, you know, the senior pastor, the main preacher. Oh, and we, we, we assign ownership to that individual. No. No, according to Paul, it's only right to call it God's church. And that man serves there in that particular role. You could say that, but it's God's church. A church's ministers serve as servants of the one true owner. Let's keep that straight. Now, at the end of verse 9, Paul shifts a little bit, and he calls the church God's building. And so he's shifting now to another analogy, to an architectural analogy. At the same time, he shifts away from focus on him and Apollos, and now he zeroes in on those who are foolishly ignoring spiritual wisdom and trying to build up the church with an unhealthy reliance on human wisdom and human eloquence. He says to imagine the church as a building belonging to God. And one day, when all the construction is complete, the owner, God, is going to test the durability of that structure. And each builder will receive his or her reward in light of whatever stands the test and lasts for eternity. So that, my friends, is the second truth about Christian leaders. Here it is. Because God cares about the quality of his church, he's going to hold its leaders accountable for how they build it. Because he cares for the church, he will hold leaders accountable for how they're building the church. Now in verse 10, Paul says he's like a master builder. He's the one who came and he laid out the foundation. He poured the cement, if you will, for this church. And he did it all with the gospel. He stresses in verse 11 that if the foundation is not the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, then you don't actually have a church. I mean, sure, the, the word church might be in the name of this organization, but if the gospel is not underlying the very identity and activities of an assembled people, then it's not a church, no matter how well you dress it up. A true church has one foundation, and his name is Jesus. Now, after Paul planted, he laid that foundation, he moved on, and others have arrived and have been building up that church upon that one foundation. And he warns now those builders who have come after him to take care of how they build, paying attention to what materials they're using. So look at verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, so wood, hay, and straw, what they represent is the kind of worldly wisdom, the worldly eloquence that many have been relying on to build up the church. And we know that that, that's a fool's errand. I mean, even little children know how foolish that is. As kids, we we grew up on stories like the three little pigs teaching us just how foolish it is to build anything with, with wood, hay, or straw. And yet, we still are still tempted to do it. Children know you shouldn't do it, and yet adults, we still do it. We still try to build a church relying on everything but the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. So we turn to corporate strategies, marketing strategies. We rely on 
having a particular style of worship, a style of doing church, or, or we rely on the entertainment value of our public services, or we target our ministries appealing to consumer needs, to felt needs. But in the final day of judgment, all of those efforts will be exposed as merely human, and they will not last. Paul exhorts us instead to build a church upon gold, silver, and precious stones. Now by that, what he means is that you should build up the church with efforts that are compatible with the church's gospel foundation. Whatever aligns with the gospel, that's what you use to build the church. And so that, that means if you're called to teach, then you teach God's truth and you exhort people with God's grace found in the gospel. And if you're called to lead, well, then that means you lead like a good shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for the flock. Or if you're called to serve, that means you serve like a faithful servant who seeks to please his master and not to promote the self. That's what it looks like to build up a church with gold or silver or precious stones. You build with gospel material. And so Paul goes on to encourage that gospel effort, those gospel materials. And, and he goes on to warn those who settle for, for more combustible material. Verse 14, he says, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, those who stick with the gospel and who center their ministry on it, will see their work survive the test, and they will receive their reward. But those who continue to rely on worldly wisdom, worldly eloquence, they're going to find their work consumed, and they're going to suffer loss. So that's a real warning. And friends, we have to take that into serious consideration, that there is a real possibility of spending all of your time, all of your energy, trying to build up a church, and in the end, having nothing to show for. This is a warning that church leaders and church members need to heed. What are we relying on to build up this church? What are we investing in? And is Christ crucified at the center of all of that? Is what we are trusting in to build up and to grow our church rooted in the gospel. That's what we have to deal with. Now note at the end of verse 15, note how Paul is quick to qualify that this loss that he speaks of is not referring to their salvation. The, the, the distinction that he's making here, again, is not between the saved and the lost, but it's between the saved all found in one church. It's a distinction being made between those who are building up the church well and those who are building up the church poorly. But I know this text has often been interpreted rather individualistically, exhorting individual believers to build up their own Christian lives with good works in order to store up treasures in heaven after the final judgment. And, and, and this is also used to warn immature believers that all of those worldly things that you're spending all your time in, it's going to just get consumed in the fires of judgment, but at least you're going to go to heaven. That's how it's often understood. And that interpretation is then misapplied to justify a two-tiered Christianity where you have spiritual Christians on one hand 
and then carnal Christians on the other. And the spiritual Christians are these wise builders who are using wise materials, and it's the carnal Christians, those whose, whose lives are completely worldly, who have no good works to show for in the end because it all gets, everything they do gets burned up, but then they're assured that they'll still go to heaven because of that you know, decision you made all those years ago when you were a teen at summer camp. That's how it's often applied. But that particular take on this passage is, I hope you see, too individualistic. And it overlooks the corporate nature of this very passage and the corporate nature of the church itself. And so that, friends, leads to the third thing. The third thing that personality-driven divisions reveal, they reveal for us an ignorance of the true nature of the church and its inheritance. And that's Paul's whole point in verses 16 to 23. So let me just read 16 to 17. Listen to this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So here... Paul reveals that when he spoke of the church as a building, all along he had the temple in mind. The church is is not just any building. We are the temple of God. And he's going to return to this analogy later on in chapter 6, and he's he's going to there apply it more individually, speaking of your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 3, let's make clear that he is addressing the entire church. You see, all of the yous found in verses 16 to 17, they're all second-person plural pronouns. And so, as Texans, we would translate this as, don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? I mean, that, that actually captures it better than the ESV. Paul's emphasis is on the fact that God dwells in us corporately in a unique way that is not experienced just individually. And so by describing the Corinthians as God's temple, that would have hit home harder for them because they were living in a city full of temples that were dedicated to pagan gods and goddesses. And so by describing them as the true temple of God, they really had to confront the holiness of their church or or the lack thereof. If they're building up the church with worldly means and worldly methods, then how is our church going to stand apart? How is it going to be holy in that sense of being set apart? If if y'all's church at its core resembles any other pagan temple in the city, then y'all will have essentially destroyed y'all's church. That's That's what he's saying, because it's no longer holy and distinct as a church built on the one foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Paul's warning. And then in verses 18 to 20, he just sums up the previous argument he's been making in chapters 1 and 2. What the Corinthians consider wisdom is merely a wisdom of this age, just a wisdom of this world, and it's considered folly in the eyes of the one true and wise God. And he starts off in verse 18 by saying, let no one deceive himself. He means we we might be deceiving ourselves if we build up the church using worldly wisdom. In the world's eyes, yes, 
our church might look very successful. It might look like a very big and prominent church, but on the final day, it will be revealed that all of our efforts to build up the church using worldly wisdom has been actually tearing it down. But instead of ending his argument with just a warning, as is often the case, Paul concludes instead with an encouragement. And so listen to this encouragement in verses 21 to 23. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. All are y'alls. And you are Christ's. Y'all are Christ's. And Christ is God's. His point is that we should stop boasting in Christian leaders since we don't belong to any of them. In fact, your own view of your own inheritance as a church that is founded in Christ Jesus is just way too narrow. It's way too constricted. You're just content with Paul as yours or Apollos as yours when in reality, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and all other Christian leaders all belong to you as well as all things in the world, in this life and in death, in the present and in the future. All things are yours. And that's because you belong to Christ. And Christ is of God. So in Christ, all things in God's universe are yours. Church, do you realize just how rich of an inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus? Why should we quarrel? Why would we divide ourselves? I mean, do you ever see fish fighting over more water? Penguins quarreling over more ice? Birds jostling for more space in the sky? That would make no sense. It's all theirs. All are theirs. And in the same way, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our small-mindedness, our self-centeredness, And now, Lord, help us by opening up our eyes to see Christ at the center of all things and that in Christ all things belong to us. So may we put down our fighting, put down our quarreling, put down our divisiveness and to embrace Christ as the gravitational center of our church, of the Christian community at large. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.